Welcome to Impact Drivers, a podcast about how entrepreneurs can build businesses that create a better world. I'm your host, Jen Helms. Welcome to the show. Technology exists that is effectively able to remove pollutants and pathogens from the air, including viruses like COVID-19. This technology was invented at Harvard University and is being commercialized by Metalmark Innovations. Imagine if our best weapon against this pandemic wasn't a mask, but instead an advanced air purification system that destroyed the virus in indoor spaces. In this episode, we hear from Cece Liu, CEO and co-founder of Metalmark Innovations. We get to learn about Metalmark's technology and Cece's entrepreneurial journey as she works to get the product to market. In episode two, we heard from Stonely Blue, co-founder and partner at Urban Us. Metalmark Innovations is an Urban Us portfolio company. Hi, Cece. Thank you so much for joining me on Impact Drivers today. Hi, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. So to start out, can you tell me about the history of Metalmark and how Metalmark Innovations came to be? Sure. Um, my co-founders, um, Tanya Sherman and Elijah Sherman, were studying uh, bio-inspired materials at Harvard University with Professor Joanna Eisenberg, uh, and they were uh, all doing R&D on structural colors. And um, structural colors are colors that are created from nano and microstructures in the material instead of using pigments. So they found a way to apply this uh, new platform technology toward functioning materials as catalysts, which um, have uh, huge implications for pollution control. So I had been spending many years in uh, clean tech, and I was uh, at the time looking to do a startup uh, myself. So Fortunately, we were connected uh, through the Reese Institute, and um, we started working together uh, and soon found that uh, we found we had a good connection, good chemistry as a team. We spent a lot of time looking at the opportunities for the technology, and eventually uh, Metalbart was born uh, to take forward this technology as a commercializable product. So, so you started to talk about the science there a little bit. Could you try to break that down a bit more for somebody like me who doesn't necessarily have that background? Uh, what we make is uh, highly functional catalytic materials. And we do this by nanostructuring metal oxides and metal nanos. So these uh, compositions of materials are able to break down air pollutants, such as volatile organic compounds, or commonly known as VOCs at uh, the atomic and molecular levels. And uh, they can also cause severe damage to viruses like coronavirus. And what's surprising is that the material's performance improvements are, and new characteristics arise from their structures and not just simply uh, because we're putting different chemicals or different materials together. So it's actually the structuring that um, uh, lead leads to many uh, new uh, performance characteristics. So in nature, you know, we, we think that nature has uh, amazing intelligence and wisdom. 
organisms have evolved over billions of years to adapt to very complex challenges with remarkably smart designs and at multiple scales. And in the case of butterflies like Meadowmark and Morpho, they have iridescent colors as a result of the structure of the wing material, which when structured in different ways, provide the wings with their strength, lightness, and the material is also water repellent. And this is the inspiration that the team took. So, but uh, equally, or perhaps more important, is that in nature, uh, the use of simple materials uh, help to foster life at the end of an organism's life. In fact, in butterflies, a single material called chitin achieves, um, is used to achieve multiple functions simultaneously. So, you know, when we think about when the butterfly actually dies, uh, the material in their wings uh, and in their bodies can be remade to support other life. And this is something that as innovators, we have to take into account in product design and development. Uh, so in a nutshell, uh, that is our technology. We use this kind of structuring concept to put together the different uh, components of our material uh, into a catalytic material. All right. I think I'm following the science now. Uh, why is this such an important innovation in air filtration? So for decades, indoor air quality has not been a major concern, to be quite honest. It's only recently with research about the complex nature of indoor air chemistry and their ties to serious illnesses like pulmonary disease, heart attacks, cancer, and even dementia that people have started to pay attention to it. And it really wasn't until the COVID pandemic that there's been a real industry-wide seriousness in addressing indoor air quality problems. The leading technologies like uh, pleated filters are excellent at removing large pollutants, uh, but at the particular, as the particular matter drops below one micron in size, that's where you get the viruses, the viral aerosols, EOCs, and ultrafine particulate matter. This technology solution becomes increasingly ineffective and costly. And other existing technologies that claim effectiveness for this particular category of pollutants carry many downsides, like production of ozone and um, toxic secondary pollutants. So our technology seeks to completely break down key submicron pollutants without the creation of uh, additional pollutants uh, efficiently and cost-effectively. And we use um, the just conventional thermal catalytic process to do this. Okay. So what are some of those things? You mentioned uh, issues with other air filtration systems. Could, could you talk about that a, a little bit more? Sure. So conventional air filtration is based on this idea of a restance. So you capture and hold on to the pollutants. Uh, and this is very convenient for the types of filtration systems or the, the types of um, air conditioning systems that we have developed, uh, which are based on uh, pushing a lot of air, uh, volumes of air through a media. And uh, this is good for the larger pollutants, as I mentioned, but as you get smaller and smaller, uh, the filter media gets uh, more and more, there's more back pressure on the system. And what that translates to is more energy required to push air mm. through that media. 
And so um, you see, start to see a lot more energy consumption, more expensive filter media, more frequent change out rates required. And capital costs also is pretty uh, much higher than what we typically have in our homes for um, HVAC uh, or in our cars, for instance. And when you think about VOCs, which are chemicals, those are not treated or addressed at all by uh, filtration. Uh, there are other uh, technologies available, but uh, as I mentioned, there are uh, a whole bunch of negative uh, side effects. Uh, so, you know, we, we can you know, do a, a deep dive on, on each technology, of course, but the general impact is that um, you uh, tend to create secondary pollutants. There's a tendency for the arrested pollutants to be re uh, released back into the environment mm. um, and so you know to us the idea of complete destruction just makes a lot more more sense um, so that's what we are working on doing okay so with other air filtration systems if they've trapped a virus I think what you're saying is that that virus can be re-released it's not killed by those air filtration systems Right, right. Actually, there are studies that show that air filters can actually trap and then propagate, allow viruses and bacterial uh, organisms uh, to propagate on filter media. Uh, so without killing them, there is that chance of re-release, re releasing not the, not the, only the viral material, but um, with uh, mold, for example, you can have additional uh, problems that get uh, re-released back into the air. So there's a whole bunch of things that could happen with um, organisms, microorganisms. With chemicals, that's another problem that uh, formaldehyde, for instance, is highly volatile. And when it does get um, uh, captured by uh, zorban media, for instance, uh, there's a chance that it gets, uh, it'll be desorbed again uh, with uh, changing conditions in the environment. Uh, so then there are a whole bunch of other technologies that have come into play. But uh, as I mentioned, many of those have, um, have problems with creation of ozone or other secondary pollutants that can be just as bad as the pollutants that they are trying to target. Wow. Okay. So what about with this pandemic that we're now facing? Uh, and a lot of attention going towards probably indoor air quality in a way that hadn't been there before. Um, how has your strategy changed? Um, yeah, so we always thought that our material was quite well suited for inactivating airborne viruses. So in several rounds of our customer discovery in the past few years, we learned that um, at the time, literally no one had any interest in this as a problem set. Uh, so we we mm. um, we talked to a lot of people uh, in the commercial building sector, with uh, even hospitals, and uh, you know, treating airborne viruses was just not on the priority list. Mm. Uh, so we therefore decided not to pursue antiviral features. Uh, Immediately, so it was going to be a feature that would come uh, later down down the road um, as uh, we uh, are bring our technology to market. Uh, but obviously, COVID has uh, made 
this a priority now instead. Uh, so this is now our focus to bring a solution that can address uh, airborne viruses and viral materials first uh, with uh, the addition of volatile organic compounds as well. So how long until you'll have something in the market that addresses COVID-19 and can be used widely? Yeah, I we are currently working on a customer demonstration program, and we anticipate having our uh, demos uh, ready for that program within six months. And uh, we're targeting getting commercial products to market in about 12 months time. So, um, yeah, so <laughs> I think there's a lot uh, more than just uh, worrying about the current pandemic. Right. Uh, because, you know, I think we are now made aware that um, uh, there's a lot more complexity between uh, our role and vis-a-vis uh, -vis that of um, the planet. Uh, so how do we prepare for future risks of other pandemics uh, or other um, catastrophes coming, potentially coming down the pipe? So I think the industry in general has also changed uh, mm -hmm. in um, response to the pandemic um, with a new thinking, which is very welcome. Yeah. Great. And uh, outside of this initial focus um, on COVID-19 and volatile organic compounds, can you just speak more broadly about other possible use cases for your technology? Sure. Our technology is a platform uh, for structuring catalytic materials, which are applicable in automotive and stationary emission control. So think catalytic converters, for example. Uh, it's uh, also uh, useful for fuel cells and electrolyzer technologies uh, in chemical production processes and many other types of chemical transformation processes. But we hope to bring solutions to the market that can address a variety of wellness, sustainability, energy, and climate problems vis-a-vis uh, -vis this um, platform material technology. Yeah, so it sounds like pretty broad, broad applications. Um... Yeah. Makes sense, though, that you would need to really narrow your focus to start. Are there any limitations? You know, I mean, that is a pretty broad, broad set. Well, the limitations are really uh, application and use case specific. So when I talk, for example, uh, fuel cells and electrolyzers, it's not like we're going to build fuel cells and electrolyzers, but to target certain components in fuel cells. Uh, that um, are um, particularly difficult to address uh, using existing technologies. Same thing with emission control. So it's not that we're going to start making, you know, start creating catalytic converters. We are saying that there are materials currently used in such um, applications, and we can make that a lot better. Uh, better by, you know, um, decreasing the amount of material required. Uh, decreasing cost, uh, mm. making the material a lot more uh, durable and stable over time, so you get more longevity out of it. Uh, so there, there's um, kind of a, uh, you know, once we find the application, we drill down on exactly what it is that we can actually, we can help to improve 
so there it comes in multiple forms um, in the case of our material which is you know what's really nice about this platform that we don't just uh, we can't we, there are some technologies where you just show that you can improve performance but in this case uh, we do have the potential to be better faster cheaper in many of these cases so that's that's quite exciting about it yeah that's great and then your technology is licensed through Harvard is that correct yeah yeah okay, okay right. so so what was that process like to secure a, a license? <laughs> yeah, um, we um, we worked with the Harvard Office of Technology Development, and um, they were patient uh, working with us uh, to understand our business model. Uh, like we already talked about, it's a platform technology, so narrowing down exactly what the uh, application cases are and how that um, then translates uh, to the actual business model really matter to uh, the terms of the license. And so um, they were very patient working with us to understand that and working through uh, the, the different areas of the contract uh, so that it could work for us. So um, it took a little while, but um, at the end, I think we achieved what we set out to achieve, and um, the university was um, very uh, good to work with us on that. Okay. And then, so would you have any advice for other entrepreneurs that might be looking to license technologies from universities? Yeah, I, I, I would say um, I think that uh, it's very important to, to have a an attorney who has experience in IP licensing to help you throughout the entire process. Um, mm -hmm. It is not expected for an entrepreneur to really be aware of what the license really implies for your business. And um, uh, working with an attorney who, who has that background um, and who has this sort of uh, corporate law perspective really, really helps. Uh, so uh, we, we definitely benefited from that uh, guidance. Um, so other than that, um, I just say that um, licensing isn't very straightforward or easy per se, but um, it happens all the time, right, with entrepreneurs getting licenses from universities. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, kind of understanding what... Um, each party, I think it's the same for any kind of contract negotiation. It's understanding where each other's viewpoints are and uh, limitations are, and then finding a middle ground. So it takes a lot of uh, patience in that case. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's a, a word I, that I keep uh, mentioning, but it's really true. Um, so, uh, but then of course, having the expertise from a, a, a legal uh, team is uh, extremely uh, helpful in this particular case. Okay. Now, commercializing this technology is uh, clearly an expensive endeavor. How have you gone about raising funds early on before yeah. you've had a product? It is very difficult to raise money for a tough tech company. Um, so I think most investors don't have the appetite for advanced materials. Mm -hmm. It's a tough tech segment that takes a lot of time for maturation. 
And it's also a sector that doesn't boast many unicorn exits, as in, say, pharma and biotech. So we've, uh, we at Metalmark have turned to, the, to government grants for a lot of the funding, mm-hmm. which we believe um, are some of the best kinds of patient capital. Uh, because they, the, the goal is oriented toward, um, seeking return from economic growth overall, rather than strict return on investment of a particular, uh, startup. So this really helped to, uh, helped us to de-risk the technology in the very early stages, um, until we, um, got to a reasonable point to start demonstrating, you know, some, customer traction and uh, with prototypes uh, toward products. Uh, we also have been very fortunate to have investors like Urban Us and BMW Mini, uh, which are forward thinking in their thesis and uh, ex- have been extremely supportive of um, companies like Metalmark. So that grant funding, is that something you focused on throughout your journey or is that something you're focused on more now? So the I think... Grant funding has been a key component of our fundraising uh, or funding source. And um, currently, uh, we are looking very much to the uh, investors and uh, VC mm-hmm. community for our next round of funding. I see. Uh, so, yeah, so you can, I think grants can take you through that very early stage of um, starting, kicking off your startup. Uh, doing some of the de-risking on the technology. But uh, once you are ready to really build products um, and to scale up your team, that's when you have to have some outside funding that's not dependent on just grants. Uh, so that's where we are now. Okay, so getting ready to raise a round. Yeah. Okay. Okay, and then... In general, can you kind of speak to how you've been thinking through commercializing this technology and and getting your product to market? What has your yeah? yeah. It's um, it's not always straightforward. That you know we have gone through pivots and uh, iterations on uh, our thinking around the commercialization on the business model. Uh, so we are now targeting uh, selling to commercial real estate sector for our initial go-to-market. We're planning to demonstrate our air cleaning system with a few uh, customers first. So if any of your listeners are interested in demoing with us, um, they should feel free to reach out to us. Uh, but basically, uh, the demonstration is uh, very critical for us to demonstrate that this um, technology works, it is effective, uh, it is something that the, the users are um, excited about, uh, and then we can start to uh, go towards selling the systems. And uh, eventually, we'd like to return back to our core uh, competency, which is in the material science, and um, uh, focus more on the material production and sales. And so we've talked quite a bit now about the challenges of, of having a difficult technology like this. Funding has been more difficult. So do you have any thoughts? I mean, you've been in the startup and entrepreneurship 
community for a long time. What are your thoughts on how we can help accelerate commercial development and adoption of, of technologies like this as a entrepreneurship community? Mm. Yeah, this is a question I keep asking myself as well. Um, I still think that uh, what uh, some people say is very true, that cash is the oxygen of a startup. Mm -hmm. And um, there are many resources available to help tough tech companies succeed. But um, there is still a lack of pre-seed and seed stage risk capital. Mm -hmm. um, there is a tendency of um, uh, investors to shy away from um, jumping in um, and taking risks at the very, very early stages. And I, I you know, there's a desire to see obviously customer traction you have to make a product that customers want and i get that but there is also um gotta be a little bit more i think uh sort of a vision driven approach right so um as we started out by saying that solving some of these problems cannot simply be driven by economics today right? some of these problems are coming down the pike and people can't even see it just like um, how I mentioned earlier that uh, we, we we knew our technology <laughs> would be suitable for viruses, but nobody cared about it. Right. So if we had actually started um, developing the technology two years ago, we would be in a totally different spot right now. Right. But, um, but uh, you know, how, how does someone, uh, how, how do investors, how can they actually create a thesis around this when there's seemingly no problem to be solved? And yet mm. we kind of have an idea, right? We, we, I think we know that there are climate problems coming up. So you kind of have to start preparing early on, but uh, there's, if it's only sort of return driven, then we wouldn't be able to uh, seed these uh, important new ideas and technologies. And so it's, um, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure there's uh, any wisdom in what I'm saying. All I'm saying is from an entrepreneur's perspective, mm -hmm. I think there needs to be more um, pre-seed and seed stage risk taking uh, from investors. And the issue with the grants uh, that you can get through the government is that the, the funding is, is limited. Um, so it's enough yes. to get you going, but it can't get you to the next stage you need to get to. Right. And there's a lot of restrictions to uh, government funding, right? Because um, typically they uh, only fund the R&D portion of the work. So everything else, your, um, your you know, developing customer relationships, um, doing marketing to help uh, the company grow, Everything like that is not covered by the grant. So you have to come up with cash in some other way or just simply not get paid in whatever sense, you know. So, um, so it's not, it's, it's really not enough, uh, to support early stage startups. So, so on the other hand, it does create a lot of grit, uh, help to foster that, um, uh, endurance in the, in the long run for the entrepreneur to figure out how to uh, get resources where there isn't any. Uh, on the other hand, I think that that also represents a major gap. Um, right. 
Right. It's a big ask for an entrepreneur too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We've been very fortunate to be quite honest that uh, we had support from many organizations to bring us to where we are today, you know, from incubator spaces at Harvard and, and Greentown Labs to um, having uh, all sorts of other uh, organizations and accelerator programs that provided access to advice through experienced mentors in industries that I'm not familiar with. These are all have been extremely helpful. Um, and the connections that are offered uh, through many of these programs. But at the end of the day, somebody has to work, somebody has to live <laughs> in order to, to keep doing this, right? So um, it's the, the people portion. I feel like the staffing portion is where the funding is uh, a major gap. So the funding to be able to have the staff? Hired staff, yeah, yep. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So it's one thing to ask entrepreneurs to make that sacrifice, but you can't, you can't hire employees. You can't do it forever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and uh, in order to hire employees, you have to pay something and um, it becomes harder and harder to keep using limited um, resources that we have uh, in terms of cash and also to use the owner's equity essentially to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, so if venture capital, you know, continues to have that risk risk aversion early on, it seems like the one other potential solution to help entrepreneurs like yourself would be for these other early support systems you found to maybe increase how much they can do. Or yeah. do you really, yeah. Maybe maybe it's also thinking about uh, risk capital in a different way that, um, you know, you, you don't have to always be providing investment that's driven uh, from the, the, you know, the typical, the standard investor perspective, but rather maybe um, using a different mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. Some, some of the grants, uh, so like private foundation grants um, could be helpful in this case. Um, just a little bit more creative ways to get capital out that is not tied specifically to generation of return immediately. Right. And quite honestly, I think the desire to seek return in a very short term basis uh, limits investors to certain types of startups, right? It's only certain sectors where you can see that. And that's, um, Basically, we have a, a, a huge, wide segments of um, technologies out there that do not fit this type, type of uh, investment pattern. So. Right. Yeah, it seems uh, very, very geared in some ways towards software um, or easier to build, yeah. build products. Um, yeah. Okay. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But that's not all we need. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, I mean the the uh, software um, based uh, technologies are very important as yes. well. You know, to especially thinking about how far we've come as a result of them, mm-hmm. and how much more we can layer software on top of the hardware mm. and tough te- tough tech science innovations to bring value to increase value. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, we when we you know, we are all um, made of 
solid matter, real concrete matter. And so not everything can be uh, simply software, right? So right. it has to be uh, a balance of the two. All right, to circle back. So a product, you expect to have product in the market, you said 12 months, is that right? Right, We're, that's our target right now, yep. Okay, great. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to continue to follow your progress. Cece, thank you so much for, for joining me on the show today. I appreciate it. Yeah, I really thank you for your, um, I really like this show. I like uh, why you're doing it. And I hope you find uh, more people to talk to and find uh, help to find a solution forward for bringing all kinds of innovations into the market. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Impact Drivers. Make sure to visit our website at impactdrivers.io where you can subscribe to the show. If you found value in today's episode, we would appreciate your rating on iTunes. Or if you could tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. I'm also available as a business coach. You can learn more about my services at lucentpathways.com. Join us next time for a chance to be inspired and learn from the entrepreneurs daring to build the hard businesses that create a better world. Thank you.